All right, quick question. Who in here is like me and you have more useless knowledge in your head than you know what to do with? You know, you can watch Jeopardy and you're like, yeah, I know that one. You know, and then people are like, why do you know all this? And you're like, I don't know. I just do. And it's, it's useless. I mean, there's literally nothing you can do with it. And you know, that's actually one of the problems we have in our modern culture is we are so inundated with information. They, they were absolutely correct when they named this the information age. Because we produce more information in one year now than all of the information produced since the creation of the earth combined every year now. What do we do with all that? You know, we're just inundated with information, information. You know, it used to be, and there are people in this room that will remember this, there used to be a time you learned something so you could do something with it. (laughs) It affected you. You learned something and it affected your life. It was either a skill or it was a truth or, or maybe even a hard truth, but it was something that when you learned it, it affected the way you thought, the way you felt, the way you acted, your work. I mean, it affected things. We, we took the information and we put it to use. That's just impossible in today's world. I, I mean, we watch the news on TV and we see something happening half a world away. What can we do with that? Besides get, you know, scared or upset. But I mean, there's literally nothing we can actually do with that knowledge that we've gained. And one of the problems is we've now incorporated that way of just kind of taking in information to this. And I tell you, there is nothing in here that God intends for us to just absorb and do nothing with. Everything in Scripture is there for what? For training in righteousness. Okay, to to make us more like Jesus, to reveal Jesus to us so we can know him, so we can have a greater faith. Faith leads to action. Everything in there is there for a reason. But we kind of live in this world where information is free and requires nothing of us. And so today we're going to look, continue in Ephesians chapter 3, at experiencing what I'm calling a higher knowledge. We're reaching higher, and it is that experience. God doesn't want us just to be good at Bible drill. You know, we've all known people that could quote the Bible chapter and verse like crazy, and yet their lives didn't reflect all of that scripture that they had inside of them. And I'm not saying in a judgmental way, you know, that they had to be perfect, but you would think if you locked that much away that it should have an impact. But that's that breakdown that I'm talking about. And so I want us to look today at the second half. You remember in chapter 1, Paul's prayer. Well, now we get back to the prayer. That's been quite a journey, right? He started it in chapter 1. For this reason, I pray. And he prayed the eyes of your heart would be, you know, enlightened. And you'd have the knowledge of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. And and all of that wonderful prayer about spiritual things. And then he got sidetracked talking about his own life and and talking about the gospel. And he's like, wait a minute, we need to make sure this stuff is settled before we get to the rest of the prayer so you understand my prayer. Well, we're there. And this is a prayer that if we really think about it deeply, it will change your life. And I am not 
exaggerate. Because it shows us that there is a knowledge of God we can have that is not that is unlike any other knowledge that we can gain in this world. It, it's effective, it's powerful, it, it's more real than any other fact we can have in this world, and, and it goes so far beyond us that Paul has to basically create a paradox to describe it. And things like that fascinate me. He literally has to create a paradox. He says, to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I remember reading that in my college dorm room my freshman year, and I stopped. I was like, how can you know something that surpasses knowledge? And it got a big circle, and it got a lot of writing in my little notebook that I was using at the time. And it's probably the verse that launched me into Ephesians being my favorite book. Because Paul created a paradox right there and said this is what the Christian life is about. And he's praying that this would be true for all of us. So this isn't some privileged knowledge that Paul has that is unavailable to us. Because Paul did have that. He had some privileged knowledge. He did have revelation that was available to him and only him to encourage him to help him be a, an apostle to the Gentile world that, you know, he says it wasn't lawful for me to tell. So he had a knowledge that we didn't. That's not what this is. This is his prayer for us, that we would enter into this kind of experience of a higher knowledge. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I don't know that there's a more exalted prayer in Scripture outside of Jesus' high priestly prayer before he was crucified. The, the truth revealed here in, in what we find at the beginning, and this is true for all prayer, and it's something we can just grab hold on, is that in prayer we go to the source. God has given us direct access to him. Understand, this is such an amazing thing. When you know your Old Testament history and Old Testament theology, did, we, did, did the common person have access to God directly? No. They had to go to the priest. The priest had to perform a sacrifice on their behalf. There was this big temple veil in the, in the, the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from everybody else. So God was in there. We're out here. And we can't go in there because we'll die. And only one time a year could somebody, could the high priest alone go in there to perform a sacrifice. 
So there was this constant reminder that we were separated from God. We did not have direct access to him. And then something amazing happened. What was that? At the crucifixion, when Jesus died, that temple veil ripped in two. Because it was no, man was no longer separated from God. And through Christ, we have direct access to the Father. And it's a revolutionary thing that happened. And it's something we often take for granted today. Our prayers are heard just simply talking and we have direct access. We don't need a high priest. You don't need somebody to to be a go-between for you. My prayers are not more effective than yours. You don't need me to pray for you for God to make sure he heard it. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't that way. So Paul is now saying we can go directly to the source. And that's why he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. See, Paul understands that when he prays, he is going to the source of all creation. But there's a little hidden gem in here that that often gets missed because we don't know the culture. In Paul's culture, the Pharisees, how would they pray? The Pharisees, in their pride, would stand before God, arms outstretched, praying, God, thank you for not making me a Gentile or a woman. They would pray that. Arms outstretched, proud. What does Paul say? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. His posture in prayer has changed. He has changed. And what was it? God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. Now what does he say? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Do you see the shift in what he considers real? No longer is it about him and his privilege. He, now he's praying to God, who he says is the, the creator of everybody, and everybody's equal under him. He has completely changed his posture of prayer. You see, the posture we take towards God matters. Paul bows his knees in humble reverence, acknowledging that God is beyond him acknowledging in humility that God is worthy of praise and that he needs to bow before his king, before his maker. He doesn't go arrogantly. He doesn't go entitled. He doesn't go to God rudely. He goes to God in humility. And at the same time, praise, he says, to whom? The Father. He humbles himself before his earthly father. This is not some detached, far-removed, angry God that needs to be appeased. This is his loving Father who welcomes him into the throne room. As I said many times, just because the book of Hebrews says, enter boldly into the throne room of grace, we still respect the throne room. God welcomes us in, but we better come in and get on our knees before the king. Now, he welcomes us, and he is our Father and you know the, the look, I get, the, the image that comes to my mind of God being a father and us entering the throne room is that when we come in to talk to him, he smiles. 
You ever had that person in your life that when you walk in the room, they smile at you? And you knew, maybe as a grandparent or a parent or somebody, that every time you walked in the room, they just, they smiled at you because they were glad you were there. I get that image of God with us going before him in prayer that it brings a smile to our father's face that his children would come to him with their concerns. You see, the entire church, both present and those who have gone to heaven before us, are all part of the same family with God as father. And Paul freely confesses this. And it's, I know we can just read through it quickly when he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. But he is confessing a, a tremendous truth here. That God is worthy of praise and he is also our loving Father who welcomes us with open arms. And so to know both the exaltedness of God and the relationship of God as Father is imperative to prayer. To know his exaltedness. We are going to the source of all creation. We are going to the God who spoke everything into being. We are going to the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-worthy, completely holy in every way, and yet at the same time is our loving Father. He has used that power for our good by sending his son to die for us. He is the source of all life, of all hope, of all wisdom, and of all that is good. And so he is, as contradictory as it can be, feared and loved at the same time. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but that wisdom then leads us directly to understand he is our loving father as he welcomes us into the throne room. And so we need to humble ourselves before him and yet connect to him as the good father. Listen to what Jesus says about the father in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you, if then, if you then, who are evil, I love how he just throws that out. Don't y'all? He's like, hey, y'all are messed up. And you still know how to give a good gift to those that you love. If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Good things. You know, we need to focus there. Good things. God's not going to give you a bad thing. He's not going to give you that serpent when you need bread. He's not going to give you a stone when, when you need something else. He's going to give you only good things. But how many times in life do we maybe pray for bad things that we think are good? Anybody in here have any prayers you are really grateful now that God didn't answer yes? If you look back and you're like, man, I couldn't have been more wrong. And I was so convinced at the time that I was going to God about it, trying to get Him to move His hand in an eternal way on my behalf for this, and I realized how wrong I was. 
you know what? That's why God is good. He is good and his gifts are good. And he will only give good gifts to his children. He can do no other. He can only give good gifts to us. And in fact, James puts it this way. In James 1.17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is good, and he will always be good, and he's always been good, and every gift that he gives will be perfect and good. Now, this should change the way we pray. Because Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you because he likes giving good things. So if we're asking and we're not receiving, what does that mean? That either means we're asking for something that's not good and he's saying no. And, and look, sometimes people are like, well, why doesn't he just tell me no? Because he already has through his word. And if we're praying something that's contrary to his nature, I don't think God should have to tell us it's a bad thing. He's given us his word. We should be able to weigh it out and and look at it and go, oh, mm, okay, there's a reason God hasn't answered this. Or it may be that he has simply said, wait. You may be praying for a good thing, but it's just not time for it to come into your life. It may be a good thing that would destroy you at this point, so it's still not a good thing yet. And it will be in the future. And so we continue to serve and we continue to pray and, and we continue to learn and grow. But the constant themes we see in prayer, in Scripture, and God answering prayer, is that we must, one, ask in faith, and God is our loving Father who is good and only gives good things. We have to come to Him with that in mind. Every time we pray, that one, we have to have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because we must first believe that He exists and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And he is good, will always be good, and will only give good things. That will change, that will revolutionize your prayer life, just keeping those things in mind. Because God is not ever going to give us things that do not align with his goodness and his love for us as a father. And in fact, what is the opposite in scripture? What, what, when we find that, that, God does allow bad things. What is it typically? It says he hands them over to their own desires. He doesn't give them. He just lets them have what they wanted. He lets their evil desires find them. He, but he just says he hands them over. God doesn't give them to them. He just says, okay, go ahead. Pursue it. And you'll get what you want out of this. It's not from me. I tried to warn you. I tried to keep it from you. I gave you a good gift, and you rejected it for a bad gift, for your own desire. And so when we get that in mind, it will revolutionize the way we pray. So we didn't just gain knowledge. We gained an experience because our prayers now are rooted in something other than self-desire, selfish desire, or, or trying to just alter the world into what we think it should be. You know, how many times can we honestly say, you know, we've, we've done that. We've tried to pray to just, you know, God changed the world into the image I think it should be. You know, instead of praying, God, make me more patient and loving and forgiving and kind, God, change them. Because then, you know, it'd be easier on me. And there's a reason God just doesn't even respond to that stuff. And people are like, God's ignoring me. I'm like, hey, yeah, maybe. Because that prayer is ridiculous. 
Parents, have you ever ignored your kid because of a ridiculous request? You know what? I'm not even going to mess with that. No. <laughs> and, and you know me well enough that you know why I'm <laughs> not even answering it because your kid knows you, right? And they're like, yeah, I knew that was ridiculous. I just thought I'd ask anyway. He is our father. He knows us. We are his children. And so when we get the right foundation for prayer, we're going to the source of all that is good and all that is life. Then we find that prayer involves the spirit, love, and power. These are the things that he wants us to pray about. Nowhere in Paul's life, as he's been whipped, he's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been killed, he's been dragged out of the city, nowhere do you see him praying, God, make the mean people go away. Nowhere. Nowhere do you see, God, make the road easy for me. What does he pray for? He prays for strength, power. He prays for wisdom. He prays for boldness. He prays for the Spirit to guide him through it. He stopped trying to change the outside world to match him. That's what he was doing when he was Saul before he was saved. He was persecuting the church, trying to force the outside world to match his ideal. Now, what does he do? He forces his inner world to match God's truth, and then he serves it in the broken world. He stopped trying to force reality to conform to him. And so we find prayer involves the spirit, love, and power. Now, this is where he picks up in verses 16 through 19. This is where he picks up the prayer that he left off back in chapter 1. So let's have a quick review of that prayer because this is the conclusion of that prayer, okay? And so he says in Ephesians 1, 16 through 19, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge. Remember, that was experiential knowledge. So this is a higher knowledge, something we experience that has to do with life. In your knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, let's just pick up right here with verse 16, because this is the rest of the prayer. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a prayer. That is a prayer of spiritual truth, depth. That is a prayer that understands the nature of God and the nature of reality. That is a prayer that understands his mission in life, his purpose, his life purpose to serve God. And that is a prayer that shows what we should all be pursuing in life regularly. So he picks back up with the prayer for power through his spirit, through God's spirit in our inner being. Paul emphasizes the inner being over and over in this prayer. Because you know what? That's where God does his work. We read over and over in the Old Testament about the human heart being sinful, right? 
And Jeremiah says, you know, the heart is, is deceitful above all things and desperately ill. Who can know it? God knew it. And what does he say? He says, I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will write my commands on it. And then Jesus made all things new. And that happens through the Holy Spirit. And so the work of God is not creating the world outside to match his kingdom, hoping that it will infiltrate to the heart. And that's what we do so many times, right? We think if we just, if, if, if we have the, the right thing and this and this and this, and we just get it all right, that somehow it'll seep in. We've all been there at some point, let's be honest. If I just surround myself with enough church, it'll seep in. But what does God do? He starts with the heart, and it presses out. And it's with the individual in concert with the body of Christ every time. Every time. But it always begins with the individual heart. And so, Paul emphasizes the inner being, the personal and unseen nature of the work. What in Paul's prayer, any of that, can be seen with the eyes? None of it. Everything he prayed, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Not going to see it. That you be strengthened in your inner being. Not going to see it. That you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Not going to see it. That you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Not going to see it. Christianity. The work of the Spirit is a matter of faith, which means it will go unseen by the eyes. Now, that doesn't mean it's not real. It's more real than what you see. And that's what God wants. He needs us to realize that what is unseen is eternal. What is seen is temporary and is passing away. We cannot base our lives on that. It must be on the eternal truth. And, and so, this prayer that is incredibly powerful, does not once mention the health and wellness check. What do I mean by that? How many times do our prayers in church center around who's sick? And look, I'm not opposed. James even says, look, are any sick among you? Let the elders, you know, pray. But the Christian life is about so much more than how I feel physically. Paul had a thorn in his flesh that God would not take away. And he says, I prayed three times. And God finally said, stop praying about it. It's not going away. And you know what Paul did? He didn't argue with God. He's like, okay. This is how I'm just going to live with this. I'm just going to live with it. And his prayers focused on the eternal realm, on the unseen aspects of his faith. And so nowhere does he pray to change the outer world or to change his circumstances or about his or their personal happiness or success or health. Nowhere does he pray, hey, I really hope you succeed in all of your business dealings, Ephesians. I really do. That's my prayer for you. What was his prayer? I pray that you are strengthened on the inside with the knowledge and wisdom, spirit of wisdom and revelation in God. I pray that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. That's what I'm praying. His focus was completely 
different. And this is an important distinction. True power in prayer is not magic that changes the outside world. It is spiritual power that transforms the human heart, the human mind, and the human soul. And he says, we pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Christ is the center. We have to remember that. This is not about behavior. It's not about worship. It's not about intellect. It is about Jesus himself, his spirit, his lordship being the center point of our lives. And that's easy to say. I'm going to tell you something right now. When we truly make Christ the center point of our lives, there's a whole lot more that falls into place in order of priorities, right? We, we know it does. A whole lot of things change. A whole lot of things become less important and other things become more important. Our priorities line up the right way. Then he says something incredibly important. He says that we would be rooted and grounded in what? Love. Rooted and grounded. Is there any better description for the Christian life as God intends us to live it? This prayer is going to be ineffective, meaning we will get nothing from it if we don't understand the pivotal nature of love within it. Rooted and grounded. If you don't have a good foundation, what happens? Anything you build on it crumbles. If a tree does not have a strong root system, what will happen? One storm comes along and what happens? Blows it over. It'll die. Now, I grew up in the Texas panhandle where the wind blows constantly. And by constantly, I mean constantly. We've gotten a taste of it this year. It just feels like home to me. And I don't like it. But the wind blows constantly. Now, we don't have very many trees, but those that we do, those roots go really deep. And so those trees, they just whip around in the wind, and, they, yeah, yeah, and they're good. Now, what was interesting is in 2015, before my family and I moved to Spokane, there was a big windstorm. And in Spokane, Washington, the wind does not blow, ever. Okay, they had a thing called air stagnation warnings. We'd never heard of because we come from the Texas panhandle where the air you breathe just came from China. <laughs> you know, I mean, it blows so much, you're not breathing anything native to the area. Um, and they had this horrible windstorm that hit. And in that area of the country, they have these tall trees, massive, majestic-looking evergreen trees that you just... You know, if you're from the Texas panhandle where, you know, you got a tree, and then you see that, you're just in awe. And you're like, wow, look at this. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Guess what happened, though? Those trees are not built for wind. And right before we went up there, they had this windstorm, and I mean, those trees just collapsed everywhere. Everywhere. Just falling on houses, in houses, destroyed half the city. Just horrible destruction because they didn't have the roots to support the wind pushing on them like that. Don't let appearances fool you. Sometimes life may look unimpressive like the trees in Amarillo, Texas. But their roots go deep. And they can withstand the storms that we know. You know about these thunderstorms here because you get them here too. 
with the wind and, and, and the tornadoes and all of this going. And, and sometimes a branch may break off here and there, but the trees, their roots run deep and they're able to withstand the storms of life. And sometimes you have these grand, majestic-looking things that's like, man, this thing must be powerful. And they can't, they can't stand up to a storm. They can't make it. And that's what Paul is praying. He says, I need you rooted and grounded in love because that is what's going to get you through life. Not your intellect, not your religion, the love of God. And love is action. Love is being, okay? When it says love is patient, love is kind, those are things that you do and that you are does not envy, does not boast. You see, love is absolutely imperative. And it's not, you know, do this or you'll fail. He's saying if you're genuinely following God, if you are genuinely following Him, this will be a part of your life. And we in the church have got to get back to requiring it as the true proof and litmus test of a person walking in Christ. We've, we've gotten away from it, and, and we've held up leaders that are brilliant intellectually and don't have an ounce of love in them. It's happened for a very, very long time, okay? And I'm talking hundreds of years. We, there, there are theologians that you go back and look at their life, and there is no, and I mean theologians of absolute in entire theological systems that are still followed today, that you go back and look at their life, and you look at how they lived, and the love of Christ is nowhere to be found how they treated people around them, how they treated their families, how they treated their churches. There, there is no evidence of love. And listen what Paul says when that's the case. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's saying you're saying nothing. What you're saying is meaningless. It doesn't matter how spiritual it sounds, if love is not the result of it, if it is not guiding you to love people and to love God and, and share the love of God, it's worthless. Verse 2, and if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am, let's say it louder, nothing. He didn't say, oh, you just got to, you know, you just need to grow a little bit more. What do you say? He says, you got nothing. Nothing. I'm not sure we're convinced of that. I, I really, I, we're not convinced of this passage. Paul meant it. That's why he prays to the Ephesians. I pray you are rooted and grounded in love. Why? Because if you don't have that, you got nothing. You know why? Because God is love. And the Holy Spirit will lead you to love. And Christ will teach you to love. The mind of Christ found in Scripture will lead you to love. There, there is no other way about it. Jesus said, my command to you is this. It's, not, it's an old command, but it's a new command. Love one another the way I've loved you. There is no getting around it. And yet, for some reason, we get impressed with theology that sounds good, but doesn't lead to love. We don't require that next step. And we're happy with it. We're like, oh, no, no, that's good. Yeah, we can totally see the difference in right and wrong. Guess what? You're not there yet. 
You know why? Because understanding right and wrong is what got us in trouble in the first place. God said, don't do that. That's not what this is about. This is about me. It's about my love for you and your love for me. And we said, no, I still want it to be about right and wrong. And guess what? Messed up the whole world. And we still get stuck in that same loop. We have to hold ourselves to the higher standard of love. The higher standard of being patient and kind and gentle. Encouraging what is good. Now, love rejoices in the truth. There's a movement today that says love is love and it's to let's say, uh, pervert what real love is and to twist it into my desires. No, true love rejoices with the truth. And that means God's word and the truth as he has laid it out and the true way he has laid out creation. And so he says in verse 3, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Good job, you wasted your time in life being religious but not loving. You gain nothing. God isn't impressed. So look at what he says here. He says, without love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I am nothing and I gain nothing. You know what that is? That is powerless, dead religion. And when we put all of our effort into something that returns nothing like that, you know what happens to us? We get bitter and angry. And that's where we can, we'll, we'll start things like, man, I am so committed to God, I'm angry about it. And you should be angry too. And we want everybody to be mad like us because look how hard I'm working. And you know what Jesus said about that? He says, not everybody says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter in. They're going to say, did we not serve? Did we not do all this stuff for you? And he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. Because if you had known me, being loving would have been a part of your nature. It would have been there. I would have taught you how to love other people. I would have shown you how to be patient. I would have shown you how to be kind. I would have taken you on this journey of love in which you would have found your true identity in me. And so without being rooted in love, religion, our religious practices become meaningless, powerless, and unprofitable for life. It is a form of godliness that denies the power therein. And so then Paul goes on in the prayer, and he says, Strength to comprehend with all the saints. And he's starting to talk about comprehending God's love. And I, this, this caught me this time. This is, you know, every time you read Scripture, there's some new part that you're like, hey, wait a minute. Have you ever had prayed for strength to understand love? Don't we just think you should just feel that, right? You know, I fell in love. I love that. It, it's not like you're like, hey, I need to work out so I can love. Nobody, nobody thinks that way. And yet Paul says, I pray that you will have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, breadth, length, depth. And he's talking about his love. The full scope of God's love requires strength. Strength of character, strength of mind, strength of spirit to understand. It's that revolutionary. It's that powerful that he's like, hey, you really want to know the love of God, you better get stronger spiritually. You better get closer to God, and you better have some roots that start going deep. 
because this is going to be a storm in your life. Because it is so going to upend what you think is real, it's going to take strength to get through it. And he says, I, and, and, and you need each other in this. He says, I pray that you have strength together with all the saints. You're not going to get through this on your own. You will not understand the love of God and, and, and walk in it properly without the help of other believers. And you have to do this together. We are engaging in something that is so far beyond us that it requires strength and unity within the body of Christ to experience it. And this is God's will for us. Now, I don't know about you, but this is starting to sound like this is a spiritual adventure, that we are venturing out into something like Indiana Jones type stuff of like what waits out here. There is definitely some kind of treasure that he wants us to find in this, but we got to work together to get there. Because this sounds exciting. I pray that you will have strength together with everybody to comprehend. Strength to comprehend. He didn't say, I pray you're smart enough. When we think comprehension, what do we think of? Intellect. Paul's like, oh, no, no, no. You need strength for this one. You need to be strengthened in the inner man, in the inner person. Your soul, your spirit need to be grounded in the truth of God and the love of God because what's coming for you is going to upend you so much. It's so going to mess with your reality that you need strength with other people to do this. Because what you are going after, and he gives the, the dimensions, the height, he wants you to know all of it, and then he just sums it up, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's like, you are going after something that is so far beyond you that when you start to understand it, you're going to realize, I didn't get there on my own. I didn't figure this out. God gave it to me. There's no way I could have learned this. I've experienced it. And I, it goes beyond head knowledge. This is not just learning facts about God. It's not just saying God is love. It is living in that love and that power and that strength that will get you through everything in life. And love is the foundation. To know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There is no other philosophy or religion or system in the world that can make such a claim as that. Everything else is the path to enlightenment, right? Know yourself, know the world, whatever. is path to enlightenment. This says, oh no, you're going to know something that is so far beyond you that you're not going to be able to say you're enlightened. You're going to say you know Christ. And then he finishes so that you are filled with the fullness of God. So that you are filled with all the fullness of God. Now, if God is infinite, the fullness of God sounds pretty exciting. That, again, means it is taking us beyond ourselves and our capabilities and our understanding of reality. This is his prayer for us. If this doesn't excite you, you're not paying attention. There is a spiritual adventure out there, and we figure out in this that God's will is bigger than we can imagine. And I know I'm going long, so I'm going to finish up with this really fast, but you have to get this last glimpse because he has this prayer, and then he says in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He says, God wants to blow your mind. He's able, and he's willing, and he wants to, and he wants to take you further than you could ever imagine. 
all you could ask or think, like you, we, if we, we can't even ask. We have no idea. It is so far beyond us that he's like, you'll never even ask for what God is going to give you. For what God has planned, you haven't even thought of it. Your imagination is not strong enough to get there. That's why you need strength. Because God has to, he's recreating us in his image, and he wants big things. And when this happens, he says, it's according to the power at work within us. It is working in you. You don't have to go find it. It's coming. God is already working, and he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Don't you love he finished with an amen there? He's like, this is, this is it. And that's why God has given us kind of markers along the way to help us to understand this. And one of those very important markers is the Lord's Supper. That for generations, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because we need to remember this isn't an intellectual pursuit. This isn't a philosophical pursuit. This is a pursuit into the person of Jesus Christ and who he is, the God who created us. And it all starts at the cross. It all begins at the cross. That is the center point of all of this. And we have to remind ourselves of it. Otherwise, we make it a moralistic pursuit or an intellectual pursuit or a philosophical pursuit or even a financial pursuit for some. We, we lower it to some earthly thing. And, and Jesus said, no, do this in remembrance of me. You remember what it was. And what was it? One, that his body and his blood are what purchased us. This is not a philosophy this is history. This is real life. This is Jesus Christ who stepped out of heaven, became a man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, and was raised in power on the third day and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that if you put your faith in him, you will be born again. Reborn. And it all began with him. And he wants us to remember that's what this is about. So he took the bread and he said, this is my body which shall be broken for you. And so we take the bread. And after he took the bread, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant which shall be shed for you. And then he said, do this remembrance of me. So today, we remember that our new life was purchased by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, a real event in history, a real resurrection in history, and one day, a real return to tie up and end history and start the new creation. So together, we drink of the cup. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. And God, I thank you for every person here. And God, we pray that Paul's prayer, God, that we would study it, that his prayer would become our prayer. God, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That we would know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And that we would be rooted and grounded in love. 
And God, that we would understand that we can't do this alone, that we have to do this together with all the saints, with the body of Christ, that you are doing something so much bigger that it can't just be experienced one person at a time. It has to be experienced together. God, give us a glimpse of that. Fan that that, that spark into a flame in this church, in this body. That we would seek you together like that. That it wouldn't be about any personality. It wouldn't be about any political cause or philosophy. God, it would be about knowing you through your son, Jesus Christ. And that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge. That we would have power in the inner being. That we would be transformed. And we would live by that power in our hearts, God. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray this together. Amen.